How much did you pay for this shit? I paid 100 G's. So you doubled your money. I'm the joker here, all right? I got fucked. A million dollars is what I was supposed to get. I get a fucking what? Made 65 G's? You gave some brothers from Ethiopia a hundred grand for something that you thought was worth a million dollars? You don't see nothing wrong with that, Howard? Ethiopian miners, you know what these fucking guys make? A hundred grand is 50 lifetimes for these fucking guys. A million dollars is more. That's my point. You understand? You want to win by one point or fucking 30 points, KG, right? I see you out there when, when the fucking stadium's all booing you. You're 30 up. You're still going full tilt. Let's see what Vegas... What has Vegas got you guys at tonight? Take a look. Let's see. Are you seriously going to pull this up right here? Look at this shit. The Sixers are supposed to win the game tonight, they think. I don't keep track of none of this shit. Who gives a fuck? They think on game seven you're not getting fucking 18 points? They don't think you're going to get eight rebounds? These guys don't know shit about me. What the fuck do they do? Doesn't that make you want to fucking kill them? Doesn't that make you want to say fuck you for doubting me? Doesn't that make you want to step on fucking Elliot Brand's fucking neck? Come on, KG. This is no different than that. This is me, all right? I'm not a fucking athlete. This is my fucking way. This is how I win. All the fucking hard work I do, all the fucking ass kicking and the dudes I pay, you're not going to score one big on game seven? Fuck these people, right? That's how you feel. I know you do. So look, let's fucking bet on this. Let's bet on this shit. <laughs> that was so fun. That was that so was fun. amazing. <laughs> I have to say, I did not expect that um, level of quality in your your Adam Sandler impression. <laughs> Thank you. You will note with, that I did not decide to do a Kevin Carnett impression. <laughs> That's okay. You know, I have so much fun to this. Doing Samuel L. Jackson for Pulp Fiction, like... Yeah, you know, you're really getting into it. I love it. I, I'm not an actor, but I like acting when I can read the piece of paper in front of me, and I'm literally just trying to copy something that someone's already done <laughs> way better than I have. And there's no pressure because I'm not doing it in front of anybody. Well, there you go. There you go. Which is not acting. So that's why I'm not an actor. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Tatum. And I'm Geneva. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Hi, Geneva. Hi, Tatum. Thanks for uh, reading that fun quote with me. That was a good time. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, <laughs> I had a great time. <laughs> um, can you get us started and tell us what you've been watching this week, if anything? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Just a couple things this week. Um, so I saw the 1976 movie Marathon Man. I've been mm. a little bit of a 70s sort of paranoid thriller um phase right now which i'm very much enjoying there's a lot um, of great movies like that that came out in the 70s yes there are <laughs> so marathon man is dustin hoffman um as a 
uh, New York City, uh, I think it's a Columbia University grad student. And his brother is Roy Scheider, who's like, he thinks he's a businessman, but he's actually some sort of government official slash secret agent. And then he gets killed by Laurence Olivier, who's a um, an, a Nazi who's hiding out in Argentina, but comes to New York to go to try and get some some diamonds that he had hidden away. And um, basically, it's a lot of just running around and terrifying torture scenes involving dental equipment and um, Dustin Ho- a lot of Dustin Hoffman jogging and um, Roy Scheider being incredibly hot, uh, which he always is. But <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a good time. It wasn't my favorite of that genre that I've seen, but I would definitely recommend it. It's, it's a great New York in the 1970s movie. Um, great kind of a time capsule of the era. Um, yeah, I had a good time with it. Have you ever seen Marathon Man? I have. Yeah, what what did you think of it? I think it's fine. It, I, yeah. It's not my favorite movie ever, but I was like, you know, I'm glad I saw it. Will I watch it again? Probably not. But yeah. it wasn't a waste of my time. I enjoyed <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the other thing I rewatched with a group of friends, uh, the movie The Lady Eve from the early 40s with uh, Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. It's a Preston Sturges movie, like kind of a witty screwball comedy type of thing um, about a con woman who sets her sights on a mild-mannered um, a snake biologist who's also like the wealthy heir to a beer fortune. <laughs> um, I And I was like, you know, you're always a little bit nervous, especially when it's an older movie and it's friends that you haven't, you know, you haven't done too many movie nights with them, so you're not quite sure how something's going to go over. But it went over great. They re- they loved it. Um, it's such a fun movie. Barbara Stanwyck, I have the hugest crush on her. She's just absolutely radiant and can do absolutely anything. And her chemistry with Henry Fonda is great. Um, there's so much witty wordplay in this movie. Yeah, it's it's such a good time. I strongly, strongly recommend The Lady Eve if you've never seen it or any of Preston Sturgis's movies. I've only seen a few so far, but I've loved everything that I've seen and I want to see more. So, yeah. Nice. For some reason, I know that name, Preston Sturgis, but I can't I can't think of what other movies he's done, but it's a familiar yeah. name to me for some reason. Yeah, he's kind of um, like a... He, he may, had a series of really classic comedies in that sort of... Um, 30s 40s era and there are a lot of filmmakers that take inspiration from him like um <clears throat> oh brother where art thou in the, the coen brothers movie is very much um kind of taking spiritual inspiration from his movie sullivan's travels which i'm hoping to do an episode o- episode on at some point so um yeah i think there are a lot of filmmakers working today who probably cite preston sturgis as an influence hmm, cool um Yeah, so as far as anything I've been watching, I haven't been watching that much because it's only been a few days since we recorded. Um, But I, you know, I continue my rewatch of Breaking Bad. I'm in season, towards the end of season three. It's phenomenal. It's, It's really good. Breaking Bad is good. Love that show. Yep. (laughs) um yeah controversial statements here from jam yeah i'm i'm really i'm really enjoying it um it's just it's so good i yeah it's incredible and the acting the acting is just so so strong and the acting only gets stronger as the show goes on and vince gilligan really pushes his actors to do 
to, to dive more deeply into their characters and how complex they are and how twisted they are. And, you know, we're getting great, great performances from Dean Harris and Anna Gunn and, and obviously Brian Cranston, and Aaron Paul, but it's just, it's amazing how they just continue to grow and develop and dive deeper into their characters. It's really amazing to watch. So even if the story wasn't as incredible as it is, it would be worth watching just for the acting. So yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's what I've been watching. Um, so with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into our uh, review today. So today on the show, we are discussing the Safdie Brothers film, Udcut Gems, released in 2019, starring Adam Sandler, Julia Fax, Kevin Garnett, Eric Bogosian, Adina Menzel, Lakeith Stanfield, and Keith William Richards. Um, and just for some fun uh, casting facts, Jonah Hill was originally cast to play Howard, which I think could have potentially maybe worked because I can see him pulling off the New York type of hustler vibe, but it would have been very different from who we see Adam Sandler transform into. So I thought yeah. that was interesting. It could work, but it would be a very different movie. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was super interesting. Um, and then also before they landed on KG, the Safdie brothers did go through a couple other basketball players. Uh, Kobe Bryant was, in the running, uh, I don't know if this is actually true because the internet is weird sometimes, but apparently Kobe Bryant was maybe supposedly offered the role, but he was like, nope, I want to direct the film. And the Safdie brothers were like, nope. <laughs> um, again, I don't know if that's true. That could just be the internet, but that's something that I saw. Go look it up for yourself. See if it's true. I don't know. Um, and then also Amari Studmeyer was um, considered to play the role as well, but um, he was busy playing basketball because they were shooting during the basketball season. So the Safdie brothers ended up going with a retired basketball player who they knew their schedule would be more available. So we got Kevin Garnett who we'll talk about him, but his performance is incredible in this movie. The fact that he is not an actor is just wild to me. And I'm upset that he hasn't been offered more roles. Maybe he doesn't want to act. Maybe this is just a one-time thing for him. But he blew, blew me away. Um, anyway, we'll get into yeah, him later. He, do you have any... Um, <clears throat> did you come across anything about had he ever acted before? Was there something in particular that made them think of him? Or was it purely basketball player plus retired, so has a little bit more time in his schedule? As far as I know, he had not acted before. Um, and I... I'm a sports person. I'm not a huge basketball person. So maybe KG is the type of basketball player where like, even though he's retired, he's still notable enough that people would know who he is to feel mm -hmm. like this character has some weight as opposed to here's some basketball player that no one knows. Um, but I don't actually know uh, his career at all. So <laughs> also uh, from one completely not knowledgeable about the basketball world person to one partially knowledge about the basketball world person does he actually go by kg outside of the context of the movie or is that just a howard in this movie is that like his nickname with fans i think he goes by kg in the like real world but again i don't know um yeah because I, I feel like very much you could see that being the case but also I could see Howard just starting to call him KG and calling him right. KG when no one else does. Yeah, I, I feel like he probably goes by KG, but uh, I don't actually know. Oh, well, I just looked it up. Yeah, KG. He goes by okay. KG. Um, 
But yeah, anyway, maybe that's why they sent it, set it back in 2012. Maybe he was playing basketball in 2012, and that's why they... Anyway, I don't know. Um, we're getting off topic. I mean, not really, but continuing on. Um, so co-written by the Safdie brothers and frequent collaborator uh, Ronald Bronstein, Uncut Gems was influenced by the Safdie brothers' childhood growing up with a dad who worked in the New York Diamond District. Um, the film tells the story of New York's jewelry dealer and gambling addict Howard Ratner. After loaning 16 carats of black opal, which he claims to be worth over a million dollars to the NBA player KG, Howard becomes wrapped up in a complicated web of money deals and unpaid loans that he scrambles to get under control. So that's kind of the basic premise of the film and just regarding the uh, the monetary success of this movie. So uh, this movie was made with a budget of $19 million, which seems very low to me considering the cast that they have and... We'll talk about this while we're recording, but the props of this movie are out of this world. <laughs> so um, $19 million seems like a pretty modest budget for this, but either way, uh, it had a box office earning of $50 million, and it actually was A24's uh, highest grossing film until it was surpassed by everything, everywhere, all at once in 2022. So um, I thought that was interesting. I didn't know Uncut Gems was that much of a success for A24. Um yeah, but, neither did I. Yeah, well deserved, I think. Um, but Must be the uh, Adam Sandler name drawing everybody in. I guess, yeah. Um, it, yeah. I actually, it would be interesting to look up the comparison of the, um, like the box office between Good Time and Uncut Gems, because yeah, I was gonna ask actually for context because uh, Good Time was their the film they made before this, correct? Mm-hmm. Good Time with Robert Pattinson was that their first film? So I looked it up, actually, because I thought Good Time was their first film, but I wanted to, like, do research to make sure I was accurate in saying that. Um, And I actually saw that they had directed a few features prior to this, so it was not their directorial debut. Um, But, yeah, for whatever reason, that was the one that kind of really put them on the map, probably because Robert Pattinson was a bigger name. Um, but we will be talking about that movie on this podcast at some point. Um, cause it's also very good. And I think more stressful than this movie. Um, <laughs> very hard to imagine, but yeah. So yeah, all of that being said, um, we can go ahead and jump into our plot conversation. So I, I was watching this movie and I don't remember, there was one other movie we talked about on this podcast that I think I, I said was similar, but I don't remember which one it was which was in my, oh, Whiplash. In my Mm. brain, this movie is kind of just like one really long scene. Like there is no, for me, it doesn't really seem like, okay, this is part one. This is part two. It's just like, yeah, we're starting here and we're just going to keep sprinting until the end. So um, I just kind of wrote down bullet points of this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. So we can kind of go through it that way and then stop where we feel like we need to and kind of just, yeah, discuss it from there, I guess. Yeah, that sounds good. Because this movie is kind of hard because it's like, on the one hand, it is so much about the just vibes and the impending sense of stress that it's kind of hard to distinguish to, to really afterwards sit down and say, this is how the plot worked. But at the same time, it is a movie that is so reliant on the actual movements of the characters and the deals they make and the decisions they make and the way every single thing in Howard's life is converging to basically bring him to his ultimate conclusion. 
And I was very impressed rewatching this movie with how all the different plot threads are weaving together constantly and how they intersect and um, how the decisions he makes are constantly pushing him forward and forward into, you know, his ultimate doom, basically. I think this is a very well-written movie. But yeah, all that is to say that's sort of simultaneously a very plotty movie, and yet it's very difficult afterwards to actually untangle and say this is what the plot was. I think it's a movie where regardless of whether you understand what's going on or what's not going on, you can appreciate it either way. If you just sit back and you're like, this is way too complicated, I can't figure this out, you can still enjoy it. Or yeah. if you watch it and you're paying attention and you're like, oh, I'm connecting all the dots and this is leading to this and you kind of understand it more, you still enjoy it. It's like either way, it's... Basically, you're, you're one, the one key to understanding this movie is, is every time Howard has a decision to make, he makes the wrong decision. That's all you need to know. <laughs> but the thing is, is it does work out for him in the end, but also doesn't work out for him in the end mm -hmm. like yeah he, which is the great tragic irony he does solve the problem but it doesn't matter because well, it's like multiple times in this movie i noticed this time around there are points where it could have worked out for him and it could something finally could have gone right but because he'd screwed up in some other area of his life, even though this one area is finally going okay, the other area is the thing that wrecks him and continues him on this path. And that's basically how the ending is. You know, he, mm -hmm. he keeps pushing it further and further and further until finally he can't push it any further. Yeah, I actually noticed because actually, so this is the this is the first time I've watched this movie since I saw it for the first time a few years ago. Um, and so there were just some things I was able to pick up on this time. And one of the things I noticed was in the beginning sequence after the colonoscopy and we first start seeing um, Howard kind of doing his thing and, and answering phone calls and then going into work and, you know, walking behind the counter and interacting with all these people. I was noticing, I was like, Howard looks really tired. He, he looks really exhausted and just like worn out. And I think that, you know, once he gets the opal, that's when his energy is kind of up and then he's up, 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 up for the rest of the movie, basically. But the way that he starts out before he receives the opal and he just looks so drained gives me this idea of, yeah, this is just a cycle that he's constantly going through. Like he might solve the problem, but then he creates another problem. And so this movie that we see is like one problem that gets solved by the end but we know that it's just going to keep going and keep going and keep going, which is kind of the, you know, the not the tragedy of his character, but just, I don't know, recognizing that even if he does make the right decisions in the end to solve a problem, he's going to make wrong decisions again. And he's just going to, he's just an endless cycle of tired because he keeps wearing himself out basically. But yeah, I don't yeah. know if you picked up on that uh, performance, at least for me, like that note in the beginning of him seeming to be a lot more tired. But No, I, I didn't pick up on it at the time, although I can see what you're saying now. It is very much like, you know, not to armchair diagnose or anything like that, but that he's going through a sort of extended manic episode, essentially throughout the entire movie, which is causing him to make all of these Ir irrational decisions and um to just kind of keep pushing himself forward even when it doesn't make any sense for for the decisions that he's making 
yeah I mean he's he's definitely an addict <laughs> so yeah and like you're totally right that you know even if he had spoiler alert even if he had survived at the end of the movie and gotten the money things would not have ended well for him he would not have gone off and spent that money reasonably and wisely and lived a happy life with um uh, why am I blanking on her name um, who his his wife or well the... I'm thinking more his girlfriend because she's Julia oh okay yeah <laughs> that's it's... what confused me Julia Fox playing Julia yeah okay. yeah he would not have gone on and had a happy life with Julia um things would not have gone smoothly he just would have probably placed an even larger bet or mm-hmm. something like that and it all it all would have the cycle would have repeated again yeah um so just kind of going to the kind of the sequence of events that start well, actually, this movie off oh yeah go ahead do you want to start though by just quickly taking us through what when you first saw this movie or kind of what your relationship is to this movie any context about when you first saw it that sort of thing is that normally what we start with yep I just yes, have I have a small story about my own first <laughs> yeah this movie, so I figured you should probably start yeah I forgot that that's something we're supposed to do um <laughs> So, yes, thank you for that reminder. Um, So, yeah, my relationship to this movie is, like I said, um, this is my first rewatch. Uh, I did see it for the first time in theaters when it first came out. If I didn't see it with you, which you said last week, apparently we didn't. I saw it with uh, another friend. And um, I remember him and I coming out of the theater and just being completely pun not intended, but like completely blown away by what we had just seen. I didn't really... I had an idea of what I was going into because I had seen Good Time prior to this film. Um, but I, for some reason, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't fully expect it to be what it was. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I remember just being incredibly, incredibly stressed out, but also just completely, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Impressed by Adam Sandler's performance. Um, I just feel like he is phenomenal in this film him and kg just blow me out of the water um and he really carries this movie i mean if he had not pulled it off the whole movie would not have worked and i think adam sandler is incredibly fascinating because we all know he he's not always in the best (laughs) movies and i would say more often than not his movies that he's in are not very good But every once in a while, he pulls out these roles and he shows us that he actually can really, really act. And um, yeah, I think he's great in this film. Um, So yeah, it's just a movie where I came out of it and I was like, this was such a unique experience for me. I've never felt this type of stress and anxiety and suspense when watching a movie other than with Good Time. Um, So yeah, that's kind of my relationship with it. I enjoyed it despite the fact that I was super stressed out and also it's kind of funny too in certain ways um but yeah anyway that's that's my relationship with it how about you I know you as you've hinted at uh you have some sort of story with this that I don't know what it is I don't think I've heard this story so I, you you probably have it's not that exciting a story at all it's just that so I I have a I have a lower tolerance for stress than you do. This is something we've discussed many times. I only saw this movie because I'm pretty sure you had seen it and you were telling me how great it was. And you're like, you have to see this movie. You have to see this movie. So I went to see it. I don't think I had fully prepared myself for what it would be like. Within the first 10 minutes, I think it was right about the part 
the the time when KG first decides he's going to take the opal off of Howard's hands. Mm-hmm. I was so incredibly stressed out in the theater. And so what I did, and I, for the record, I do not endorse this. <laughs> do not do this. Do not copy me. <laughs> what is this? I don't, I I've so never stressed heard out. this story. So I... <laughs> It's, I'm building it up. It's, it's really not that exciting. A she story. went outside. She took drugs and <laughs> <laughs> took 10 tranquilizers just to get through this movie. <laughs> so the theater I was in, 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 in my own defense, it was not very full. And um, <clears throat> there was no one else in my row. The row behind me, the, the seats, there's a, a very st- um, sort of um, sharp drop between each level. So the 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 levels were very different, so it's kind of difficult to see down and to see the people in the the, the row in front of you. And only because of that, I took out my phone ten minutes into the movie and I googled the plot summary of oh. Uncut Gems, and I read the entire Wikipedia page so that I would know exactly what was going to happen and exactly how it was. Tatum was shaking her head as she should. Because you do this all the time. <laughs> Not normally in a theater. Not in a theater, yeah. but yes. I don't handle suspense. I don't handle certain types of suspense very well. And this is exactly the type of movie that I, I don't deal very well with. But yeah, 10 minutes in, I had to Google the the plot summary and read what was going to happen. And so I would know the ending and I would know what we were working toward. And once I did that, it was a much better experience. Yeah, this movie, I came out of it and I was like, that was the most stressful experience of my life. I'm never going to see this movie again. I'm glad I saw it because it's really good, but I'm never going to see it again. And then it's one of those movies where it just starts working your way into its brain, into your brain. And about two weeks later, I was like, huh, actually, I kind of do want to watch that movie It's quite good. Yep. (laughs) It is. It's really good. So I was happy to have a... A chance to rewatch it, and it was much better on the second watch. Knowing mm, interesting. what I was getting into, there is it. This movie, the vibe of it is so strange because it is so stressful, and everyone is talking at the same time, mm-hmm. and everyone is swearing at ten thousand words a minute, and yelling at each other, and people are making bad decisions. But it's also weirdly soothing in a way, maybe mm. because of it's just constant noise and stimulation and chaos. And beautiful colored lights and New York City. I don't know. There's something about it. The the soundtrack, too, that kind of electronic score, it's very hypnotic. <clears throat> and so I was watching it late at night last night. And I wasn't, like, falling asleep or anything like that because the movie is constantly what? shouting at you. <laughs> but I, I did find it weirdly soothing. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, I can definitely see this being a movie that I will rewatch more. To because... fall asleep? Jenny was going to put it on for <laughs> before bedtime. Just background noise. To... Yeah. <laughs> it's my new white noise machine. There's nothing like hearing 500 fucks before you go to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's just, you know how there's some movies where it's like, it's not soothing in the sense of like, it's going to put you to sleep, but it's soothing in the sense that there's stimulation in my brain and I just need to kind of get on the level of something else in order to even me out. I don't know if I'm describing that very well, but for some reason I found that on the second watch, this movie really worked for me in that. So yeah, uh, that was my experience watching this movie. That is I learned so some things about myself. Yeah. That was like a, a 180 from your first experience to your second. First experience, oh my gosh, this is so stressful. I can't handle it. How? Where is this going? To second watch, you know, this is real soothing. <laughs> <laughs> um. Wow, yeah. Well, 
Thanks for sharing that. I definitely, I don't think had heard that story, but maybe I didn't just forgot. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry if I recommended it to you and uh, didn't prepare you, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure when you recommended it, you said it's so stressful, but it's yeah. so good. It's yes, it's very stressful. Um, but at the same time, you having a good time? Yes. Um, oh, speaking of which, I did want to say, um, I don't know, I don't know if you've watched this or rewatched it or anything, but in my brain, I have this just kind of weird library of favorite movie trailers. And I just look them up from every time, from like from time to time just to watch them. Uncut Gems has one of my favorite movie trailers of all time. It's really, Ooh, really interesting. good. It's okay. I'm really going to look good. it up right after this. I yeah. don't remember. I'm sure I've seen the trailer for this, but I don't remember it specifically. I, this might be weird, but I probably watch it like once every couple months. It's a really good trailer. Um, there's so many bad trailers out there that when they're actually good, it's it's an art form, really. It's like, mm-hmm. how do you take this hour and a half plus film and boil it down into two minutes in a way that's interesting, but doesn't give away I, too much. Mm-hmm. I was trying to convince some friends of mine to watch The Green Knight, which is a mm. movie that Tatum and I both adore. <gasps> that trailer and, is so well, good. Okay, so this is the thing, is that we looked up the trailer, but the first one they played was not the teaser, which is the really good one. It's yes. a, a later trailer, which yes. is not as good. Okay. And so we watched the whole thing, and then at the end of it, I said, I'm so sorry. That was we gotta the watch version. the other one. We gotta watch the teaser. <laughs> yes, that's actually another trailer that I watch every few months. That's on my list. It's a really good freaking trailer. It's, it's really good. Yeah. Any anyone who's Ugh. listening, if you've not seen the teaser, the original teaser for the Green Knight, go look. When it the up. music builds and you have the giants, then the camera flips upside. Oh my gosh, mm. it's so good. Um. Yeah. Also, watch that movie. <laughs> it watch the trailer yeah. and then watch the movie and then watch the teaser and then just watch the Green Knight. You know, can't go yeah. wrong. And then Geneva and I will talk about it on this podcast at some point. Um, anyway, it's a Christmas movie. We got it. We got to do it around Christmas. <laughs> the look you're giving me. It is a Christmas movie. Okay. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I I don't connect the dots there. But let's talk about that. It's at another time. <laughs> they're Christmas. Maybe it's a New Year's movie, but it is explicitly a holiday gathering in which the Green Knight shows up. Again, uh, the look on Tatum's face cannot be described. I, I, <laughs> she looks so skeptical. There's just movies that are called Christmas movies that I'm like, okay, just because there's snow doesn't mean it's Christmas. Uh, not that this is one of those movies. Anyway, we haven't even started yet. We barely talked about this movie, I feel like. Um, but okay, so just to kind of start with this movie. So I remember when I first saw this in the theater, I was very confused. I thought I was in the wrong film. Uh, because I was just like, okay, it's a bunch of people that are clearly not in New York City <laughs> that are walking in the wilderness somewhere, and now they're inside of a cave. But then once they started actually, you know, mining and things like that, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Now I know I'm in the right place. But I just remember seeing that in the theater and genuinely being like, oh, I think I'm in the wrong theater. I need to get up and walk out. Um. But yeah, so I just wrote down, um, because I think I've mentioned before, I love how movies begin in kind of introducing you to the characters, introducing you to the tone. And so I wrote down in the opening sequence, I don't know how long it is, a few, but it's a few minutes before KG actually walks in. This is how many things we have happen. 
we have the colonoscopy. Then we have Adam Sandler go or Adam Sandler. Then we have Howard go to work. And then the kind of the the um, the mob people come in and kind of beat him up a little bit and say, where's my money? Where's my money? And then he's like, oh, I'll go get it. And then he leaves. Then he has a phone call. And then he goes to his second apartment where we meet Julia. And then we find out he has kids. And then he leaves. <laughs> and then he starts betting on basketball. And then after that, he goes back to work. Okay, I'm literally writing all these things. Um Oh, yeah. So then he goes to bed on basketball after um, selling something. And then he goes back to work and there's a fight outside of his job that are the um, the bodyguards of KG. And then he goes inside and then he meets KG. So within like the first five minutes of this movie, we have like six different locations, so many different people that we're meeting. Howard's running around on the phone, yelling, talking to these people, getting beat up. And it's like, oh, Okay, so this is what this movie's going to be. <laughs> um, Can I just say, I I feel so sorry for whatever poor schmuck has to be Howard's accountant because oh, I do not understand how his business model works. That man is never in the office. I don't think he has an account. I don't understand how he makes any sales whatsoever. The fish are his accountants. That's That's... But then, but then, but then, Lakeith kills them. His um, books just, just they get by on vibes. Honestly, I wonder if maybe that guy who who quits at one point is the guy who does the books. He's like a lot of other people would love to have me come work for them. You're just totally disregarding he seems like my the value. Most sane and reasonable person in that office, so probably yeah. Which is um, also, but why I he mean, quits. we have the guy in the back who fixes the watches, the repair guy. Um, That's true. He's, yeah, he seems- he's he's. Says. he's reasonable enough to stay out of the way he of minds his own business <laughs> he's like hey i just fix the watches i don't i don't sell them um <clears throat> but anyway yeah and so i don't know what do you think do you have any thoughts about that opening sequence of kind of the the colonoscopy and then hitting the ground freaking running and then meeting kg and all of that do you have any thoughts there yeah absolutely well I mean, even before we're introduced to Howard, I just wanted to say a moment of appreciation for that opening of the discovery of the opal in Ethiopia. I think just just opening it with a reminder of what these gems are and the human cost that it takes to excavate them. And the fact that we open with a sort of, even though there's not any sort of mystical dimension to it, this idea that already... Two seconds into the movie, this opal has already caused extreme hu- damage and human suffering. There, there's a guy who has seemingly lost or has had extreme damage done to his leg. We don't know what happens to him. Um, but yeah, just just from the very outset, these these jewels are causing nothing but pain and awfulness. And I love the way that it goes from... Um, the discovery of the opal, we dive into the depths of it and it's just, it's beautiful, it's ethereal, there's all these different colored lights and then we're kind of gliding along what in what appears to be a cave and it's glistening and it appears to be encrusted with diamonds. We don't really know what it is. And then it becomes clear that it's the inside of someone's colon <laughs> and just the the dark humor of it, but also the... Um, you know, what really is it saying? It's sort of, you know, mm-hmm. making this equation between 
diamonds, wealth, and the colon, the rectum, poop, like, you know. <laughs> um, also, yeah, I mean, a colonoscopy, obviously, it's trying to make sure that there are no signs of impending illness and doom. Um, <clears throat> also, I mean, I just had this random thought of like, and maybe this is me just getting a little bit too um, many philosophical or thinking way too hard about this for a second, but just that idea of the the preciousness of a human life and how much we fight to preserve a human being's life and how that gets weighed against a jewel and how th this jewel is is changing hands at the expense of so many lives. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I just had a lot of thoughts just from those opening two, three minutes or so. So again, just brilliant writing. And then as you said, there's just insane. As soon as Howard shows up, it's an insane fast pace. We're bouncing from place to place. Howard is, apparently can never stay in the same place for more than two seconds at a time. And we're setting up so many different plot threads that are going to play out through the rest of the movie. It's just, it's really, really great, strong, um, clever writing. Yeah, I we're, we're going to get into this a little bit at the end, but I find it to be very frustrating that this movie was not recognized at an award level for its screenwriting, for its acting, for its editing. Uh, I think it's really... So many things. Its score yeah. um, should have been recognized. Yes, yeah, so many things. It's really a shame. Um, I looked up, and we can get into this later when we talk about awards and stuff, but... Um, yeah, I did some research to see what to kind of refresh my memory on what was it going up against that year. And this movie really should have been nominated for some stuff. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny that you or it's interesting that you mention kind of about, you know, this this the beauty of this stone and then weighing that against, you know, the value of human life and things like that. And one thing that I picked up on this picked up on uh, during this rewatch is. It's really, I feel like the value of this opal, it really is this idea of the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Because I feel like everyone puts a different value on this stone depending on what they want it to be. And so Howard wants it to be this over million dollar stone because he just wants to make money. And then we have KG looking at it as if it's like this god, like it's this magical entity that can grant him wishes almost you know he's rubbing it he's looking at it before games he's giving thanks to it when he wins you know he treats it as this godlike figure almost and then we have the the people who are in charge of this um auction who are just like yeah it's two hundred thousand dollars whatever and then we have that you know part of this quote that we said at the beginning of this episode where kg's literally saying so you know, you paid these Ethiopian people $100,000 for something that you're trying to sell for a million. And then Howard is like, yeah, but $100,000 is everything to them. That's way more money than they'll ever have. Like, they should be thanking me. You know, this is my way of winning. This is your way of winning. This is their way of winning. And so I just found, I feel like the first time I watched it, I was so caught up in the stress of everything that it was more so like, what are, how is Howard navigating this? And how is he going to fix this? And how is he going to get out of this? Oh my gosh. Whereas this time around, I was more so noticing just kind of the, the theme and the role that the stone actually plays and how all of these things that are ensuing, all of these things that are happening, 
is just because people are looking at a rock and thinking it is something that it is or isn't, but it's because of how they see this thing that causes all of this chaos. And so I don't know. I, I guess maybe that should have been obvious on the first watch, but this time around I was really seeing like the stone is the motivator behind all of this. It's not just Howard doing these things for no reason. It's because of anyway. Um, but yeah, yeah well, I just they, found that to be super interesting. Yeah. Well, they say, right, in um, for a lot of gambling addicts, it's not about a specific amount of money that you're trying to win. It's about mm-hmm. the pursuit. It's about the the high, the thrill. And it's so significant that the the gem in this movie, it is an, an uncut gem. It is about a gem that is not fully formed. It doesn't actually exist with a set dollar amount. It's about the potential you know, the the potentiality that it has. It's about what it could be worth. So for Howard, you know, he has this these grand visions about this is the gem that is going to solve all of my problems. It's going to get me out of debt. It's going to get me into the life that I think I deserve. And for Kevin Garnett, it's about, you know, it's this gem that represents the idea of winning and the idea of, you know, this is this lucky sort of um, totem or something that can can bring me into the the achievement and the glory that I want, you know, it's, it's not the value of the thing itself. It's the value that everyone is putting onto it. Yeah. And I think another thing I noticed this time around is the first time when, you know, he goes to the auction and and the Opal gets appraised and they say, initially it's $250,000 worth or something like that. And then they lower it obviously because he pisses them off. I, the first time I watched it, I had this idea of oh, the reason they're appraising it at such a low price is because they're trying to rip him off. But this time around, I'm like, I don't think they're trying to rip him off. I think that his idea of how much this thing is worth is so over the top that he's just delusional, you know? And so I found it interesting how this time around I saw it differently, which I think is probably the right way to see it at this point. But um, yeah, just me recognizing that he thought it was worth this much. And then the people who actually do this for a living and they don't have any reason to appraise it for something that it's not really. They're the ones who are telling you that it's actually a quarter of what you, if not less of what you thought it was going to be. And um, yeah, I don't, it really is just Howard is his own worst enemy, you know, and, and he just gets caught up in all of these things. And I think that, you know, talking about how this movie is is an interesting combination of humor and stress and all of these different things. I don't think it's a coincidence. Yes, I mean, it's very funny. But I think the fact that the first time that Howard holds the opal in his hands, he says, holy shit, I'm going to come. <laughs> like, I think it it says a lot about, I mean, yes, obviously it's very funny. But it, it says a lot about just who he is and how he values these things and how it makes him feel when he gets these things in his hands and he he's actually holding them of just like wow this is not just oh look I can get money or this is a cool stone it's like this is huge you know and um yeah I just think that line is that line is brilliant in establishing his character and kind of where we're going from here you know yeah, yeah. So much of this movie is about just the relentless pursuit of desire, of, you know, 
of more without really understanding or defining what that more is or what the cost is to get there. You know, even the characters, even the non-Howard characters, you know, his wife, his kids, they're they're living this very materialistic lifestyle. And, and you know, they're they're not as messed up as Howard is, but there is this kind of gloss and shallowness and materialistic pursuit to the lifestyles of pretty much everyone in this movie. And it all, Howard is kind of the extreme end of it. But I think it's um, it's sort of the extreme that shows, you know, the the sort of human, um, the the human common pursuit that so many of us have, and so many of us can fall prey to. Yeah. So, kind of going from that, um, I have a question. I think I, I I wrote down this question while I was watching it, and I was like, I'm genuinely not sure. And I think maybe I formed an answer by the end, but I would love to hear your thoughts. So in this opening part, when Howard first gives the opal to KG, first of all, what do you think his motivation was in bringing it out in the first place? Because we have that whole scene where he's going on and on and on about this stone and all of these things. And then KG's like, can I have it? And he says, no. And then KG responds with, why would you show me this and take it out if you're not going to let me have it? Which is a great line and has kind of become a meme. And it's, it's such oh, a great is it? delivery. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, so I was watching this and I was like, what was Howard's motivation? Because his, his response is, oh, I just got excited because I got this thing. And I'm like, are you actually that stupid? Is that actually what your thought was? Oh, I'm really excited. I'm going to take it out and talk to you about it, but not let you have it. But the alternative is you took it out to let him have it for him to bring it back. And he obviously spins it in a way where he's like, hey, I want you to tag me on social media and take these pictures and post it. But it almost seems like an afterthought. And so what is what is your read on that sequence? What was Howard's motivation for bringing the opal out? Did he intend to have KG take it for social? Like, what what is your read on that? <laughs> that whole scenario. My read, I think, is just that Howard has no impulse control and no filter. And if the opal had not arrived when KG was there, mm-hmm. nothing, none of this would have happened. But it did arrive when he was there. And he was so excited that he couldn't resist showing it to people and bragging about it. And, um, you know, maybe there is that sort of in the back of his mind, like, I'm a business owner. It's good for me to you know, kind of if I have celebrity clients, it's good for me to be publicizing the things that I have, especially this thing's going up for auction. You know, it'd be good to spread the word. But I I don't think it's a whole lot deeper than just he's a person who is so, um, you know, he he's coming apart at the seams. Any good sense that he might have had has just been worn away by all of this stress and whatever kind of episode he's going through. And yeah, I think it just, it arrives. He's so excited. He can't keep it to himself and it turns out to be a big mistake. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, I just think it's, it's interesting to see how, you know, like I said before, when we first see him, he seems very tired. And then when the opal arrives, he's up, 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 up. And Mm -hmm. he's just, you know, paying for that. The the rest of the Well, and I think too, like the opal, I think is, 
I, I mean, I think we've already said this, but the opal, I think, is kind of his last-ditch plan to dig himself mm. out of the hole that he's found himself in. He's pinned everything, all of his hopes, all mm-hmm. of his, um, you know, every sort of rescue plan that he has. He's pinning it all on the opal. That's probably the only thing that's been occupying his thoughts for the past couple of weeks. And so when it comes, it's just he can't, he can't contain it. He's got to let it out. You know, mm-hmm. he's like my, my rescue plan is finally here and it's so beautiful and i'm gonna look at it i'm gonna show it to everybody and uh, yeah and that's things unravel from there yeah yeah i mean i i wrote down which i think all of us knew the first time we watched this movie the second he hands over that opal we're all just like this is not gonna go well this is when it's it's yeah. so well filmed the way mm-hmm. that, and again, you know, Kevin Garnett's performance is so good. You you just buy that he's instantly so sucked into it, and the mm-hmm. way the camera lingers on the 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 little flecks of the gem that are coming out from underneath the rock are just so like the prop itself is is beautifully created, um, and the way the camera kind of just zooms into it, you feel like you could just dive into the depths of that jewel. You understand why he's sucked in because it's well, like feels like Sorry. there could be anything in there, you know? You're everything, the the best thing possible, the greatest moment of your life could be inside that gem if you could just get inside it, you know? You you get all of that through the, the direction, through Kevin Garnett's performance. Well, the first time he looks at the stone, we the camera does dive into it, and we see flashes of his past. We see pictures yes, of him as about a that. kid and, like, his, his, um, his ancestors and all these things coming up to present day. And so... Yeah, I mean, in addition, so that combination of the filmmaking choices of the Safdie brothers with the expressions on KG's face and his acting performance, you really believe that he is all in on this. Like, he's mesmerized by it. He's hypnotized by it, you know? Mm -hmm. And which kind of adds this layer of, oh, they're like he's not bringing this back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Are you kidding me? No. And so... um. Yeah, it's got to have it. Yeah, he's got to have his. it. Yeah. And the only thing that kind of made me a little bit less of like, maybe he'll bring it back tomorrow morning, even though I knew he wouldn't, was the fact that he gave his championship ring to Howard. I was like, OK, so there is some form of exchange of goods here. And the fact that Lakeith Stanfield's character was trying to make it so that KG didn't have to give Howard something. He was like, no, 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 he's good for it. But then KG was like, no, 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 that, that's that's fair. That's fair. You know, I'll give you something to hold on to. We'll do a little swippity swap, you know. Um, we got to talk about Damani. He's such a fascinating character. And then, of course, <laughs> Howard goes and pawns the ring, like, immediately. He's like, oh, yeah, you know what, that, what would be a great thing? To go put this somewhere, hopefully get money from it, to pay these guys off, and then I can take the ring back and sweat. Just like, what is your plan here, dude? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? The way this man's mind works. Yeah. It's so, it's like even for a con person, there's probably a simpler way (laughs) that you could go about this rather than, oh yeah, I'm going to trade it for this ring, take this ring to this place, have them hold it till Friday, then get the money and then get it back and then trade it for this. I'm like, dude, there's probably some other way to do this that's less complicated. (laughs) But um, anyway, uh. But yeah, before we move too far forward, we can go ahead and talk about uh, Damani if you want. Sounds like you had specific thoughts there. Yeah, ju- no, just um, I-, I find him such an interesting character because he's so, um, the 
Actually, if you have thoughts on him, go ahead. Because, like, actually, how do I even form my thoughts? <laughs> I actually don't have any thoughts on him. So, yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll talk about him later when, when he okay. intersects with the narrative more. Okay, cool. Um, the only thought I have on him is that Lakeith Stanfield is one of my favorite actors working today. He just is. Yeah, he's terrific. Um, There's one particular moment, and I can't remember exactly where it happens, but it's definitely later in the narrative where he just has this acting moment, and I really want to pick it out. Hopefully I can remember when we get to it, but anyway, <clears throat> we'll talk about it later. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I guess moving forward then a little bit, after this, we have, after he takes the ring to the pawn shop, um, Howard does go home and uh, we get to see him kind of interact with his wife for the first time. And he's played by Idina Menzel. Uh, Adele Dazim. Excuse me. <laughs> Adele Dazim herself. <laughs> Who's that great joke in this will movie. never get old. Like, it will never get old for me. Uh, <laughs> um, the poor woman. But yeah, so we have him. So he. So he pawns the ring, then he takes that money and bets it on the game. And then he goes home and is like religiously watching this game at home and da 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 da. And his wife. Completely, yeah, completely yeah. ignoring his family. And his wife is like, um, go tell your son goodnight. He's like, okay, after this game. And then, you know, he waits and waits and waits until she forces him to go. Um, but I. So actually, I'll finish summarizing this sequence real quick. So then he ends up going to sit by his son's bedside as he's falling asleep. He's watching the game on his phone the entire time. And then after his son is asleep, he goes to his other son's bedroom and watches the game in there. And then after he leaves his son in that room, he goes back to his wife who's sitting on the couch, who's watching something, who he then proceeds to beg her to switch the channel to the baseball game or to the basketball game. So um, very clearly, even though he's at home, He's not really present and at home. He is very much so still working, still stressed out, still caught up in all of these things. Um, So I have a kind of a starting question for this. And then if we want to talk more about it, we can. But I found it to be really interesting. Just the thought of what is the backstory to this marriage? What is it between Howard and Dinah that got them to actually get married? Because I look at them and I'm like, how did she? It seems like she never liked him. But because I don't see her being a past Julia and then becoming who she is now. But maybe she was. I don't know. Maybe he was more stable when he was younger. Do you have any thoughts on that in terms of like their backstory? I definitely get the sense throughout the movie that Howard, even though he's always had these tendencies, these are things that have been kind of building up over the last few months. Like over the last Last few months months. is really interesting. Okay. like maybe he's been a gambling addict for years, but I think re- things have really come to a head hmm. in the relatively recently um, in the sense that and and they explicitly say in the movie that the thing that has caused them to um, decide to divorce is that she discovered a, the existence of Julia in the other apartment, um, which seems like it happened not too long ago. So the sense that I get is that they at Howard was not always this way. He was probably once a much more stable person. Um, maybe, you know, probably a lot more charming and, um, he's, you know, he, he has a 
business that has apparently been extremely successful so that he could have a beautiful house on Long Island and a really nice apartment in Manhattan. Like that yeah. that man at, at one point must have been raking in the money. That apartment so, is not cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think he was he was much more successful. She was probably attracted to that. Um <clears throat> he was probably a lot more stable and charming and I think there's probably a point they were probably pretty young when they got married as well. Like I could just see there being a um of previous phase in their lives where their lives and their relationship looked very different to where it is now. But I think because he has gotten so his gambling addiction has gotten so out of control, there may be other things going on with him mentally. Um, they've just drifted apart and she's just gotten to the point where she just, she really can't stand the sight of him anymore, you know, and understandably the way he treats her and the way he treats the family. And it is so fascinating. Sorry, this is not really a tear original question, but I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on to what, to what extent during the film he will make and what seems like a kind of he will make an effort to reach out to a member of his family, to reach out to Dinah or to reach out to one of the kids and try and connect with them. And they just push him away. To what extent do you think that's a really genuine attempt to reach out? To what extent do you think it's a kind of cry for help? To what extent do you think it's maybe he feels like he should say something now, but he doesn't really know how to? It's not actually genuine. I don't know. What do, what do you make of the his relationship to his family? Yeah, I love that question. Um, I think... So I have two different thoughts on that. My first thought is, as far as the family, the idea of having a family, I feel like that's what he likes. He likes the idea of having a family. But when it comes to actually having to be a part of that family, it doesn't seem like he actually likes what it is. So I think he's I think he's idealized a lot of things. I don't think he actually wants a family, but I think he wants to want a family but the fact that he has one means that he has to engage with it somehow and so I think in the ways that he does engage with it they do feel genuine to me I do think that particularly the scene with his daughter it does seem like he genuinely wants to connect with her um and with his son it seems like when he's playing basketball with him he's like oh this is someone in my family who's also interested in this thing we can bond over this and you know, when they go to the apartment later in the episode, it does seem like he's trying to protect his son from the reality of, you know, there's someone else living in this apartment. And when his son finds out, obviously he's very upset by it. Um, His relationship with Dinah, I don't know if that's as genuine. I think that's a little bit more going back to that ideal of, oh, I like the idea of having a wife and I like the idea of having a family. So... I think that's maybe a confusing answer to your question, but I don't, I don't think he wants a family. I think he wants to want a family, but the fact that he has one with the relationships that he does have within that family, it does seem like he genuinely wants to connect with his kids, but doesn't know how. And his wife, that seems like he just likes the idea of having a wife, but yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that's very insightful. I think he is someone who, he has just gotten so used to the idea that all of the relationships in his life are transactional. Mm, And so that's mm -hmm. how he approaches them all. And that's how he approaches even what might be at least 
at least in part, a very genuine attempt to connect to his kids. It comes across now because he has done it so many times as our transactional relationship is going to be once a month, I'm going to ask you how you're doing. And Mm -hmm. that's going to be my contributions as a dad. And Mm -hmm. that's the extent of it, you know? And so it's it's difficult to even tell to what extent it's genuine anymore because I think they've just gotten so in the pattern of he's not there, then the two seconds that he is there, he's going to ask one question and it's not really going to be intended. He's not really going to care about the answer. And that's just the way that their relationship works. Yeah. And I think that definitely plays out in that kitchen scene that he has with his daughter where she's very clearly like, I'm just going to give you very flippant one word answers to your questions because I know that you like you asked me these same questions a month ago and a month before that. And it's going to be this, you know, you don't actually care to talk to me. And this is pure speculation, but I suspect that she knows that he's cheating um, and she's aware of that. And so that probably taints her perspective as well. Um, There's a really fascinating glance in that scene between Dinah and um, I want to say Marcel. Is that his daughter's name? No clue. I don't remember. Um, His daughter (laughs) and his wife where it's just it's like the the two of them kind of sharing this like ugh, this he's around Mm -hmm. gotta just put up with it until you know until he's not anymore. And you just get this sense from that one glance you get the sense of they have an entire life and an entire world that does not include him because he's intentionally not included himself in it and yeah so when he's there he's intruding on their space or he's put himself into situations where he can't participate like even with the theater show granted I feel like he would have much rather been somewhere else but he went because he felt like he had to but even when he did go he couldn't even be there because there's people lurking in the back of the room which then of course he ends up naked in a trunk of of his car you know and it's just which I'm like, just just wait till it's over. Like they're not going to jump you in the middle of the performance. Like you don't need to confront them now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I like the I like the concept that they add his family into this because I think it just it adds more layers to his character, and we see again talking about you know the value of human lives and and the value of of stones and money and all of these things. Um, we really just see a lot of like what is actually important in life, what is valuable in life. Is that a universal thing or is it, does it change depending on the person? Does it matter? Does it not? Um, and yeah, I also, can I just say, I, it's, I mean, I can't even imagine someone saying this to me. It seems so cruel, but at the same time, Howard seems so disconnected that it might not even really be computing in his brain. But when when Dinah laughs at him and it's like your face is so stupid, I, I'm just like it's kind it of funny. So cutting. It's, it's kind of funny, but also like, but, yeah, because that's something where it's like he can't change his face, like that. You know, um, I mean, you could shave that goatee. That's a pretty terrible goatee. Can you imagine his character without the goatee? Though it wouldn't work. I feel like no, um, no, it's yeah. essential great great hair and costuming choice so good the earrings with the glasses and the necklace and it's man talk about great costuming um but yeah anyway well um, and it's it's so fascinating then to contrast his relationship with his family with his relationship with julia mm -hmm. because 
you know, on the surface, they do very much have that sort of transactional relationship where it's, you know, the, it's the classic. She's the mistress. He pays for her apartment and her clothes and um, he comes home to her whenever he wants and they have sex. And that's kind of what their relationship is. But throughout the movie, you do kind of she does kind of genuinely end up being the only person in his life who actually cares about him for she kind of likes him yeah she actually has she actually i i feel anyway that she would even if he didn't get the money at the end even if he wasn't who he was she would still want to be with him i do not know why (laughs) but she does seem to have this genuine effect affection for him and i don't think he feels the same way about her i think that he he very much views her in the same way that he views everyone else which is um i will pay attention to you when you're useful to me and when you're not um you don't exist um any slight against me i'm going to cut you out of my life but if i cheat on you or treat you badly you're just supposed to accept it like that's just his default way of treating everyone in his life but she does seem to with no strings attached have some sort of actual affection for him and so it is really fascinating and again kind of tragic to see then how um you know even that one area of his of his life is ultimately screwed up as well you know she is one one route that could be um a way back into a more healthy stable pattern but you know because of the decisions he makes that that doesn't end up happening yeah and I think I think it's worth mentioning because we were talking before about you know the the school play and he probably doesn't want to be there but he goes and even when he's there he can't participate I think it's worth mentioning that he's also late to the play because he goes back to his apartment to be with Julia and we have that whole scene where he's in the closet and he's texting her and yada, yada, yada. Oh, that's right. I and forgot that's when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's because of that whole encounter that he ends up being late to this play. And um, yeah, I mean, also to your point where I, I do think that she does like him. And I think that that, at least in my opinion, I think we see that a lot in that scene where he's in the closet texting her because she looks into it, you know, I feel like a, a, a mistress who's not into their, you know, wh- whatever you call the guy that, that she's with would just kind of be like rolling their eyes. And of course he wants this picture or whatever, but she's sitting there and she's like, Oh, I'm going to change. I'm going to set this up. I'm going to, Ooh, let me look cute while I lay on the couch. Like, I think it's really interesting how, I don't know. She genuinely seems like she likes him and I don't think he completely dislikes her. I think there's a part of him that likes her as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he likes her. I just don't think that he's in a mental place where he can really see anyone else. And I, I say that as if I'm taking all the blame off of him, which I'm not. Like, he he is very much to blame for the way he treats people. But I just don't think right now he's capable of really seeing anyone else as a human being or um, putting their, their thoughts and desires and needs before his own or, or considering... Um, lo- you know, anything from another point of view. I think he's just completely blocked out all sort of that, you know, empathy and self-sacrifice and kindness. And I think he's just, yeah, all of those things are not really within his grasp when we're we're experiencing him during the movie. And so I think he likes her, but he likes her because of the things that she can give him, you know, the 
the sex, the the sense of status of dating a younger hot woman, that sort of thing. I think she also helps him access himself. I feel like he... I don't know. I feel like he's more emotional around her than he is with other people. With other people, he just seems like, okay, I'm yelling at you because I have to get this thing and I need this from you and I got to go here and oh my God. Blah, blah, blah. And I feel like with, with her, he actually, he's actually more vulnerable in my opinion and doesn't, and not deceptively so. He seems to be like, okay, this is, you know, we have that line at the end where she's like, you can come home to me. Like you're my home, you know? And, um, Anyway, yeah, I, I don't want to get too too far ahead with that. But um, yeah, so just to kind of, I'm going to catch us up in terms of the the plot. Because I, I just really like saying kind of the progression and how quickly it goes from one thing to the next. So, you know, he he gives KG the opal. He gets the ring. Then he goes to pawn the ring. Then he uses that money to bet it on a game. And then he's watching this game with his family when he goes home. And then he actually ends up winning the bet. So then after he wins the bet, oh, wait, maybe I'm actually, no, he doesn't, he's not late to the school play because of uh, being with, uh, being with Julia. But anyway, so he wins the bet. He wants to celebrate. So then he goes to meet Julia. They have sex. And then after that, the next day or whenever it is, we're at the theater. He goes to this show, which he then has to leave because these you know, these hit men, not hit men, but like these, these um, the collectors. Yeah. Yeah. Who are like following him around. They take him in the back. They throw him in the car. They get mad at him for resurfacing his swimming pool with the money that they should have used to pay him back. You know, understandable. They they have they have some points. Yeah. I, I love when Howard's like, I never resurfaced anything. I don't know who said that. <laughs> um, the way he I mean, we don't know for sure that he's lying, but you're pretty sure that he he's definitely lying, resurfaced he just lies like pool. he breathes throughout the entire exactly movie. but the way he's just so like you i feel like he just believes you know the things Everything. that comes out of his mouth yeah. yeah yeah he's totally delusional um so yeah they basically tell him you owe us money he's like okay okay then they end up taking his clothes off they put him in the trunk of the car then oh, important um one important note is we mm-hmm. find out during the sequence that so Arno, the man that he owes money to, is because, his brother-in-law. Well, yeah, is his brother-in-law one, but two because he heard about the fact that um, uh, Howard bet, um, like, er, got some money and then immediately betted on something else. Arno stopped the bet, so the money that Howard won from that basketball game, he's not going to get. Right. Yes. 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 Oh, yes. That's right. Very important point. Thank you for saying that. Um. So then, yes, he's locked in the trunk, naked. Diana comes out, gets him. Can't even imagine how humiliating that is. Then we go home. We have that scene with Howard and his daughter uh, where clearly she's talking to her friend on the phone about how embarrassing it was that he was found naked in the trunk of a car. Um, And then after that, Howard decides to leave. He goes to a concert where The weekend is performing uh which so is so much the weekend in this movie i had forgotten about that it's a strange addition to me i am not a fan of the weekend i'm not going to go into that not a fan of the weekend um but anyway so he's supposed to meet up with Demani there who's supposed to give him the opal of course he doesn't have it of course he doesn't have it <laughs> um and so so yeah so then howard goes and then he finds julia in a closet she's doing coke but probably more with weekend in the closet well it's so interesting because we see her reject 
his like he keeps wanting to do things he keeps trying to make out with her and she's like no no and she doesn't do nothing like she's she's feeling him up but you know again she does seem to genuinely to the extent that she can while she's extremely high on coke be trying to stay faithful to howard Um, yeah yeah her her character is fascinating yeah um so anyway they get into a huge argument because howard is like how dare you be in the the closet with in the closet doing coke with the weekend yeah um, (laughs) we've all been there howard yep and so um anyway we have all of that happen and then um i'm trying to sort through my notes here this plot is very confusing i like wrote things down so then the next thing i have is i think this is the next morning uh howard goes to work kg comes to return the opal but howard doesn't have the ring so then so then kg leaves because he's like about that yes so then kg leaves he keeps the opal because howard doesn't have the ring and howard's like damani how dare you come here and not tell me you're coming i didn't have time to go get the ring blah 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 so anyway, that doesn't work out. Then we have our scene where um, they have the Passover Seder dinner um, where Howard has to participate in the <laughs> in in the proceedings, which he clearly doesn't want to do. Um, He's reading off the plagues, which feels thematically appropriate. Yep. Uh, and then after that, we have the kind of confrontation between Howard and Dinah where he's like, give me another chance. And Dinah laughs at him and says, your face is so stupid. <laughs> this is also where we, uh, I, we, we knew that Howard had some sort of connection with Arno, but I think this is where we like really discover that they are actually family. They're not yes. just, they don't just have a business relationship. They have a family relationship, which is one of the reasons that Arno has been so, uncomfortable and so acted so weird in all of their confrontations before he's been like don't say my name don't say my name and it's because they're they have this family relationship i think we also learn that this is kind of a a not a family business but the the concept of 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 um just kind of dealing things and and trying to trick the system to get money it seems to be a family thing because they're having this whole conversation where it's howard his brother-in-law i think the guy is his uncle all of these people they're all kind of like oh really what about this they all seem to kind of speak this lingo so to me it seems clear that howard is not the only one who has this disease who has this addiction it's kind of something where blind leading the blind type of thing and i think we see earlier with or no. Yeah, we see earlier with Howard's son how he's kind of interested in learning the tricks of all of these things. And, oh, I'm super fascinated in what you're doing. How much money did you get for this, that, and the other? Um, so I think it's yeah, interesting. It's very much this sort of subculture that Howard has grown, grown up in. And mm-hmm. like his entire world is contained within this subculture of like a lot of businessmen and hustlers, basically. Yeah. So... Seemingly, after this evening, it appears that Howard and Dinah are still going to be getting a divorce. Uh, I don't think that they will be staying together after this. Um, well, definitely not after uh, the end of the movie. Well, this is this is true. Um, Sorry. No, no, that's that's a very good point. Um, but yeah, and so then after this, you know, they go to the apartment. The son finds out that Howard has a mistress. He's very upset by it. All of those things. Um, so then a the little. Go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to say the you know we didn't mention this when we were talking about his family, but the the small subplot throughout the movie of his son, his his older, the older of the two sons, mm-hmm. the way that he idolizes Howard and mm-hmm. 
seems to hang on every bit of information he can get out, out of him. You know, when Howard is watching the game with him, he mentions that he bets some money and the kid's like, how much? It was a lot, right? You know, and even though Howard won't tell him how much, he's like, it's a lot, right? Like, he just idolizes everything about Howard and his lifestyle. But this moment being that moment where it's sort of, you know, the classic growing up moment of realizing your parents are flawed. They're not the heroes that you think they are. They're actually, you know, deeply flawed people who have secrets and have um, things that they're not proud of. It's I think it's it's a small subplot, but I think it's very well played. Yeah, I we've kind of hinted at this, but I just want to say it as a whole. The casting in this movie is phenomenal. Everyone from top to bottom, I feel like is so fitting for their role. I think who they cast as his daughter, who they cast as his son, his uncle, his brother-in-law, all of these people, the casting, I believe all of their performances and I believe that all of them are these people. And even this this young boy who I think is teenager, maybe preteen, he gives this really, it's very brief. He's not on camera very often, but I believe everything about him. And I think he gives a great performance. Um, So shout out to the casting director of this movie. I think that there should be, not that this movie was nominated for anything, period, but I think in general, award ceremonies should start having awards for casting directors and for cast ensembles. But that's, you know, tangent. Um, but anyway, so yeah. So after this, the next day we have, oh wait, somehow. Oh yeah. They go to the, oh, I forgot them going to basketball practice and blah, 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 blah. Oh Um, my goodness. Well, that's kind of important too, because, um, because so Howard shows up. That's why he's late to the, that's why he's late to the theater performance because they have to drive two hours and then two hours back to get the well it's like so so howard shows up to the auction house where he's supposed to drop off the jewel so he can get appraised he's supposed to meet the damani there because damani's supposed to bring drop it off but instead Mm -hmm. damani drives up and says kevin kg still got the opal so howard demands that they drive two hours down Mm -hmm. to philly the second they walk into practice Howard immediately embarrasses Damani. He's just like running around and stealing basketballs and horsing around. And so what Damani does is instead of actually doing what he said he was going to do and taking Mm -hmm. him to KG, he just walks off and Howard gets stopped by security and has to take the bus back to New York. (laughs) Oh, Um, I forgot about the bus. Yeah, you're right. mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, yet another missed opportunity that's purely caused by Howard's own you know, inability to control his own impulses. Right. Yes. So thinking about that, I'm going to correct what I said before. When KG comes back to the shop and he has the opal, but Howard doesn't have the ring, Howard takes the opal and is like, if you want it, come to the auction. And then he tells him somehow he arranges to get him the ring back at another time. I don't remember. This plot is very complex. I took I took as good of notes as I could considering how fast this movie Moves from one thing to the next. Um, but anyway, so then Howard goes to the auction. He sees that it's appraised for 200 something thousand dollars. He's like, that is way below what I thought. Not to also shout out to the, uh, to the, what do you call it? Um, not, not secretary. What are they called? Uh, the receptionist or yeah, the assistant? Yeah, shout out to the receptionist. Her performance is great. Oh, it's incredible. It's I love the per- pitch perfect version of, you know, customer service person who they, their boss has all the power and they represent the boss, but they mm-hmm. also have to 
play nice with the client, but the client is really on their last nerve. Like she, she handles all that so well. I also like seeing someone interacting with all of this nonsense that does not give a flying flip about it because everybody else in this movie cares in some way, shape or form about how this world of dealing things works. This woman does not care at all. And so she's literally just like, it's a fucking rock. Like, I don't care if it's a million dollars. I don't care if it's $20. Just say what you need to say and leave me <laughs> leave me alone. Yeah. Just get it here on time or not. Or like, or don't. I don't care. <laughs> I literally do not care. Yes. I could care less. <laughs> Can I say too, I mean, A, I have no idea why Anna, the, um, the auction appraiser, woman that Howard deals with why she actually puts up with him when he puts her suit through so mm. much but that mm-hmm. moment in particular where he's talking to her on the phone and he's just he's like all right well you know this is not going to work this lower estimate is not going to work for me so what you're going to need to do is you're going to take it out of the programs and make an announcement at the beginning yep that's what you're going to do thank you very much and she's like no no we're not going to do that no and he's just like yep okay great that's that sounds good thank you I wanted to throttle him. It is the <laughs> most annoying thing. The way, the specific way that he chooses to handle that circumstance is just so freaking irritating. And yeah, I don't know why she put up with him and didn't just pull the opal completely from the auction. I feel like they have history. That's that's my gut. This is not their first time interacting. Somehow she owes him something or he's of benefit to her somehow like this is not their first time communicating. That's that's my that's my um, opinion. Um, but yes, so so we go to this auction where Howard has asked his I think uncle to up the bids so that KG will pay more money for the stone, uh, and so he ends up upping it to what like one hundred ninety thousand dollars, almost yeah, two hundred thousand. Right. I think that sounds right because. Howard wanted to get it up to 250000 to a quarter right. of a million, but he can't get it up that far. He can only get it up to 190000 And KG is like, no, 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 that's too high for me. So Howard's yeah. poor uncle has to end up paying for this opal that he then gives back to Howard. I love how Howard's like, can I have the opal? And his uncle's like, take the fucking opal. Like, I don't care. You know, like the stone doesn't mean anything to him either. Um but yeah, so then this this sequence of events kind of leads us up to our climax of the movie, which is Howard goes to work and he okay, this is a this is a scene where um I, I think so this this happens to me every once in a while with movies where I watch them and then there's specific scenes that kind of pop up in my memory from time to time whenever something's happening in my life and like my brain is just transported to that particular scene. This is one that I think about uh, unfortunately, not not infrequently, the scene where Howard goes into work and he goes into his office and he's kind of having his breakdown and, and he's crying and saying, I don't know what to do. Oh my gosh, I'm so fucked up. I've done all these things and I'm trying to fix it, but I don't know how and there's nothing I can do and blah, blah, blah. And well, and he's got a bloody nose too because he met the Arno's men on the streets and they gave him a working over, if, yes. if I'm remembering mm-hmm. that right. So yeah, he's like, he's stumbling into his office. He's got black eyes he's got blood the opal isn't worth anything his uncle Mm -hmm. had now he has to pay his uncle back and da 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 and so all of these things are kind of culminating in this perfect storm and he has a breakdown and 
I remember the first time I saw this movie, I told a friend after the fact when they had watched it, I was like, this is a scene that I relate to so much. Not that I have done these things that Howard has done or anything close to it, at least not that I think. <laughs> um, I have had these moments where it's just kind of this perfect storm of my life. Then all of a sudden it just becomes too much. And I literally say the same exact things that he says here of like, I'm so fucked up. I'm trying to do everything right. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do just over and over and over again. And I just think that this scene, not only is it a great performance from Adam Sandler, but I think it just feels so honest and so real of what happens to human beings, I would assume. Maybe just me and Howard. I don't know. But I think it seems like a realistic portrayal of of how humans respond when things just get to a point where it's too overwhelming and you don't know what to do and you just kind of break down and you don't even have words of what to say other than like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And um, I just think it's a really great, a really great scene. And then we have Julia coming in. She's like, yeah, I feel really bad too. I'm so sorry. Like, what? And I'm like, girl, what are you talking about? But she does. Yeah. Which is really funny. But she does genuinely try to comfort her. She, yeah. she shows this tattoo that she got of his Yes. Name, oh, which my again gosh. is one of the reasons that I think her affection for him is genuine because it's like he broke up with her. She moved out of the apartment and yet she still went out and got a new tattoo. And he's like, why did you do that? <laughs> yeah. And then that this is when she tells him, like, I can be your home. You're my home, you know? Um, yeah. Which, by the way, I mean, um, so much a so much appreciation again for Adam Sandler's performance. He is brilliant in this movie, and it. it I remember us discussing the the um, actor nominations from mm. this year, and yeah, you know, how much we were how frustrating it was that he couldn't get a nomination because he really deserved it. There was also, another person that was snubbed that year. I don't remember who it was. I remember this it was like was Adam the, Sandler okay. and one other guy that I pretty wanted sure to that this was the year where I had like my list of best actor nominees was like eight long and and none of them were nominated. not none of them but some of them were nominated yeah and some of many of them were not um because this was the 1917 year um if you remember oh that was the other one yeah george yeah we george really McKay, wanted, george I wanted to, be to get nominated yeah. i also think matthew reese is really brilliant in um beautiful day in the neighborhood anyway anyway say, <laughs> we don't need to really like that yeah We've probably but, um, already talked about that for hours. <laughs> we probably. <laughs> um, but the other thing I was going to say, because we haven't mentioned it yet, but I really love Julia Fox in this movie. I think. Oh, she's yeah. Really, she's great. She's great. She's so natural and warm. And um, I I know she's sort of a like, she's kind of a celebrity figure. Like you'll see her kind of um in paparazzi shots and doing you know she she has this very out there sense of style i don't know how much acting she's done apart from this movie i know she does a lot of sort of public appearances i think she might have a podcast things like that but she hasn't I, done much acting i looked up her imdb okay yeah i would love to see her do more acting because i think she's really really wonderful in this movie yeah she does a she does a great job um so yeah, after this breakdown scene, so Geneva, I'm just going to kind of say the rest of the progression of the yeah, movie. Yeah, just speed Since through it, it all. all blends together. Yeah, then we can take bits and pieces. So um, so they have this breakdown scene where Howard is at his low and he's like, I owe everyone money. I don't know how to give any of them, how to repay any of them what I owe. And then he gets a phone call <laughs> that says, actually, KG is coming by and he's going to pay you for the opal. <laughs> 
And so then he's still interested. And then all of a sudden he's flying high again. He's like, everybody get ready, blah, 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 blah. So then KG comes in and then he gives Howard money for the opal, which Howard then obviously takes. Um, and then KG leaves with the opal as the like the mob money collectors come in and they're like, where's our money? And so then Howard <laughs> texts, texts Julia and is like, hey, go next door to the window. <laughs> so he takes the money, he hands it in a bag over to Julia in the other window so that she can take it and go bet it on a basketball game that KG is now going to go play. He books then, her a helicopter yes, for her he does. To, to fly her to the casino yes. so that she can place this bet, by the way. Yes, to place this bet so that on this game that KG is playing, because he's confident now that he can win because now he has the opal. So Julia goes to bet the money and the the um, Howard ends up locking these mobsters into this door that has already been pre-established that sometimes it's janky and it doesn't open. So Howard intentionally leaves this thing in the door so that they can't get in or out. So they are stuck in there for the entirety of this basketball game where Howard is pacing back and forth. You know, obviously he's extremely invested in this game because if they don't win, he's really fucked. So he's yelling and screaming. And and meanwhile, Julia is over at the casino dealing with this helicopter guy who's being creepy and weird, but she knows that she can take advantage of him in order to get what she needs. So she's also watching the basketball game. Long story short, KG and his team, they end up winning the game, which means that Howard has won all of this money from his bet. He's he's won. He the bets he placed, I think they say he wins like one point two million dollars. Like, yeah. it's a huge payout. So he scores big. He hits real big. And so Julia and Howard are freaking out. I love you. Blah, 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 blah. Come back. All these things. And so then finally, oh, we see KG on the screen kind of being interviewed. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'd like to give thanks to this rock, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> um, so then Julia manages to leave the casino because she leaves separately, waits in a car. And then the helicopter man collects the money bags for her and walks out so that the people that were kind of following her and hoping to get the money from her don't make the connection that the money this helicopter guy is leaving with is actually Julia's money. And then Howard ends up unlocking the door, letting the mobsters and his brother-in-law out of this little entrance to his store. And immediately, the the main mobster guy shoots Howard in the head. The brother-in-law... Right in the face. Right in the face. And the brother-in-law is like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And then the mobster proceeds to shoot him in the head. And then the mobsters, there's two of them left. They end up basically breaking all of the glass and stealing seemingly all of Howard's um, uh, jewelry and watches that he owns in that space. And then uh, the movie ends with us zooming into the bullet hole in Howard's face. And then we move into the magical world of gems again. And then it's over. So that's how the movie ends. Uh, What do we think about that? Any thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It's a lot, but it, it it's feels a lot. so <laughs> it's so inevitable. Like again, mm-hmm. watching it the second time around and knowing where everything was going to go, it really could not have ended anyway except for how it did. And it is so I mean, we said this already, but 
it is so perfectly ironic and tragic the way it ends with him finally hitting the big score that he's been trying to get this entire movie and at that same moment is when he has finally pushed things too far and it finally Mm -hmm. the universe bounces back on him and he gets killed and that idea that you know julia who is kind of you know with the very low bar (laughs) set in this movie kind of the best person you know the person that we like the most in this movie she does have all this money but she's headed back to a very uncertain fate we don't know if the mobsters are going to find her and kill her um we don't know if she's going to get get away with all the money um howard's uh shop is being robbed we don't know what's going to happen to his family it's just all of this chaos and mess is just completely left behind and you know it, it's really all all from his the decisions that he makes but i love the um i mean there's just a beautiful you know twistedly beautiful circularity to the way that it starts with that sort of zoom into the gem and then into howard's colon and then howard's life and then we end by zooming into the bullet hole and then kind of back into the gem it's almost it makes the movie seem like it's almost a dream of the gem you know, it kind of gives this cyclical nature of, you know, gems like this. I mean, so many diamonds that exist in the world, the ones that are really big and have names, they have these really torrid, bloody histories to them. And you get the sense that this is kind of the beginning of a new cycle. You know, there's going to be probably so many deaths and um, so much pain connected to this one gem as well. And Howard's is just kind of kickstarting it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think... I think even though Howard's story specifically ends here, he's leaving a lot of chaos behind, right? Like KG still has that opal. Who knows what he's going to do with it? Julia has all of this money. The mobsters are still out and around. There's still people that he owes money. You know, it's just like, just because Howard is dead, there's a lot more going on here. And so I like that idea of kind of, you know, the, the cycle continues. Like Howard's part in this in this play might be over but there's a whole other story going on that's going to continue and continue and continue um so yeah I remember the first time I saw this I was in the theater everyone in the theater audibly reacted when he was shot in the head and it's interesting because I look at it now and I wonder what type of ending did I expect this movie to have because there's no resolution to this there's no way that it could be like okay and Howard learned his lesson and it's the end like it's very fitting that he is shot at the end but I just wonder what type of ending was I expecting because no other ending would have been would have felt right it would have felt cheap or or forced or whatever so I love ultimately how it ended and I love the shock that it gave all of us in the theater and how we all kind of left the movie and were able to talk about it after the fact I think it's a really gutsy choice made by the Safdie brothers to do that, to have this whole movie be just propelled forward and and so involved in this character. And it's not even like he's, you know, they have a discussion and then he's killed or like there's no leading up to it at all. It's just, boom, he's dead. It's so sudden. It's so sudden that it almost makes you think, wait, is this like, is this a joke? Did that just happen? You know, is it, is he fake dead? Is it, but it's like, no, he's, he's dead, <laughs> you know? 
And um, like the brother-in-law dying feels more predictable. It's like, okay, Howard's dead. Now the brother-in-law, it's less shocking. But Howard being killed so quickly in that way, when there's such a build and a build and a build and a build, and it's just, nope, it's over. I just, I don't know. I find that to be a really, really awesome, awesome ending. I, it's just so great. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, that's kind of all I have to say. I don't know if there's anything else in depth with it that you want to discuss. The ending sequence, there's just so much going on and it moves so quickly. Um, but I feel like by that point, it's like everything's already been established. It's just it coming to a its yeah. logical conclusion given the possibilities. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very inevitable, as I, I think I said. I did want to circle back to Dimani. Um, sure. Just because actually I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on his character. I feel like I find him so... I mean, A, Leakey Stanfield is wonderful in this movie, but I find his character very confounding because I just feel like I don't understand what the relationship is between Howard and Damani like I mm-hmm. I understand that Damani's role is to basically go out there and hobnob with high flyers and bring them back to Howard's shop so that he can get a percentage of what they buy but mm-hmm. I'm just very curious because they're so antagonistic and Damani seems to have no loyalty toward Howard whatsoever he's <laughs> he's constantly telling Howard he's gonna bring the opal and then he doesn't and he doesn't bother to explain on the phone <laughs> like that oh KG's gonna keep it a little bit longer he like makes Howard go to all the effort of actually meeting him and then tells him what's gonna happen he also tells time, him he also mm-hmm. tells him at one point he's like I forget the specific point that it is oh it's when KG comes to to bring him the opal and Howard doesn't have the ring on hand Damani is like what are you doing if you're gonna treat my people that I bring in here like this I'm gonna take my people somewhere else and that's what leads to him pouring the the juice into the fish tank because that's right mm-hmm. because he's like uh, you're this isn't worth this like why am i even working with you if you're going to treat me and my people like this i'm out of here you know mm-hmm. um, yeah 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 it this this is the thing and like um Damani apparently has a bunch of watches that he's trying to sell to people on his own that Howard's allowing him to keep there though Howard seems to be helping himself with the watches and uh, I'm just I find their relationship really confounding. Like, how did they get connected? Did their relationship, their business relationship at one point work and now it doesn't as Howard is going off the rails? Or has it just always been this chaotic and toxic? I would assume so I, that it started somewhere and just got more difficult as time went on. I know you won't be able to fully understand this comparison because you haven't finished it. But it, it kind of reminds me of the of the relationship between Jesse Pinkman and Walter White. It's like they start out in this place where they're on the same page of just like, okay, let's do this deal to make some money and then we'll be set. And then over time, even though they hate each other, <laughs> they somehow keep coming back together and doing business together because they recognize that ultimately the only way that I can make the money that I need, either that I want or that I need to survive or whatever, like we just have to be together, but wait, no, I hate you, but wait, ah. And I think that, not that I really know much about the world of, of illegal selling of things, whether it be fraud jewelry or, or drugs or whatever, maybe that's a common dynamic. I, I don't know, but that could be a common dynamic of you start in one place and it's a mutually beneficial relationship. And then it gets to a point where it's so transactional and maybe 
you both owe each other so many different things and so many different favors because of the history that you have that like it's hard to just leave um but I don't actually know (laughs) there's a really great little acting moment there's so many great little moments in this movie for a movie that is as fast-paced and loud and stimulating and propulsive as this is there are a lot of really nice just little moments where the the camera will linger on a character doing something and it just tells you something about that character even though the the focus of the story is on Howard but I want to say it's when KG comes back to the um the office for the second time to to return the opal and and Howard doesn't have the ring. It might be a, a different scene, but the camera sort of spins around Damani and he just has this look on his face and you can just see him give up on Howard then and there. Mm. Like mm-hmm. it's like in that moment he just completely sees through not that he really had a high opinion of Howard before, he did not. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just like any last lingering respect for Howard he might have had, he just you can just see it go out the window. And from then on, he's just even more antagonistic toward him than mm-hmm. he was before. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder if it has something to do with your, something you said in the beginning of, I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, but maybe I don't know but you said something in the beginning about maybe what we're seeing Howard as now is a recent development like like he's always kind of been this person but recently it's gotten to a whole new level of just being a whole lot worse and everyone is just like wow this you are a tornado of destructive of destruction more than ever before and so maybe that's kind of culminating in their relationship to a point where he decides to leave and it wasn't like that before yeah. Well, it is fascinating that the script never, there, there is no indication of, um, you know, all the inferences we were making about maybe Howard was different before. These are all just inferences. Like the, the script doesn't tell us anything about Howard's childhood, about, um, you know, what he was like as a young man, any traumas that he may have gone through, any, you know, ups and downs or other experiences. There's nothing about his backstory. We're just meeting him as he is. And we can make certain inferences based on, you know, what we see of his family life and things like that. But um, I think it's a really interesting decision to create a character who is so messed up and to intentionally withhold any sort of explanation of why that might be. Um, Because there are many reasons why it might be. Um, And it's not, that's not part of the story that the Safdie brothers are telling. Yeah, I I don't necessarily think that this is, I was just kind of voicing something that you had said before and running with it. But I don't necessarily agree that I think that this is something where this is like a different level than it was before. I see him as having been like this for years and years and years I, I see this I see him being this way for a very long time it doesn't seem like something at least in my read of it I don't think mm-hmm. it's something that's like a new like more advanced version of what he was like before yeah. um, I guess what I mean is I think he has always or at least for for years has had these addiction issues and impulse control issues and personality flaws I just think it's gotten we're meeting him at the last moment mm-hmm. where it has gone gotten completely out of control i think maybe mm-hmm. he before could have kept a lid on it and that's why he was able to maintain his lifestyle and his relationships for as long as he was but now we're seeing the last few months where it is completely spun out of control and everything is breaking down 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, you talking about actors moments in this movie, I think that we have little hints of that, which I loved these moments in this movie. I didn't notice them the last time, or maybe I did and just forgot, but there are some very short, brief shots of Howard's brother-in-law reacting to Howard's state, what he's doing or what he's saying or whatever. And he looks very like genuinely very grieved of just like oh wow this is really like he looks sad he looks saddened by Howard's state of mind and um, I think that that suggests that there is maybe a thought that you know people who are observing this from the outside and seemingly someone who cares for him in some way because they're family this is hard for them to witness um, in a way that it 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 hasn't been before. People recognize it is the end, you know. Um, but clearly yeah. Howard doesn't at all. Howard is like, oh, yeah, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Mm-hmm. Everyone else yeah, is like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And conversely, too, um, again, with the little moments, when Howard gets the big payoff, when, you know, when, when KG wins the game at the end, you can see that Arno is genuinely impressed and kind of excited for him a little bit, you know, like he's like, I, I can't believe he pulled it off. Wow. And like you you he has this little moment of like, oh, all right, well, I guess he did pull it off. I guess everything is gonna turn out okay. And then it doesn't because his bodyguard has been pushed to the the snapping point. But um yeah, like there is that human, you know, texture to that relationship. It's not just um loan shark that I've borrowed money from who's a gangster and is going to kill me. It's I have this sort of human connection with this person who is completely out of control. And, you know, I have to do my job as a a gangster and get my money back. But I I do also have some level of caring about this person and um, and their ultimate fate. I found I also found it interesting during this scene, which is, again, something that I only noticed on the second rewatch. I think that the brother-in-law and perhaps the the second guy in that little glass room, they're not even watching the basketball game. This is a whole game. Basketball games last, what, like two two hours-ish, give or take? They're watching him this entire game, but there comes a point when someone asks the other guy, like, what's the score of the game? Are they winning? Like, I don't know. So clearly – Arno has not been watching the game at all. He's sitting there watching Howard this whole time, going through this this crazy experience of of ups and downs and yelling at the TV and going through all these different emotions. And I found that to be really, really fascinating. The first time I watched it, I was like, oh, they're all watching this game, really invested in like, oh my gosh, are they going to win or are they not? And I think that knowing this time that, first of all, the guy who's going to shoot Howard is not invested in the game at all because he's going to kill him no matter what. And then Arno can't even see the game from where he's sitting. He can't even see what the score is. So I find it to be really fascinating that Howard is in this universe where everything is revolving around the game in this moment. But for the people who are there, they don't care about the game at all. They just are focusing on Howard. And I just found that to be really, really interesting. I didn't pick up on that the first time, but yeah. Yeah. Random question for you. There are uh, two or three scenes throughout this film where another man that Howard apparently owes money to, he's like kind of a short guy. He's got guy these with sort the of hair. Very, yeah, very mm-hmm. fluffy gray hair. And Howard just kind of brushes him off. 
what do you think is the the purpose of that sort of it's it's hard to even call it a subplot because it doesn't really get any resolution it's just there's this other guy on the peripheral and he doesn't really play a part in the conclusion at all but what do you think that why do you think that was included in the movie i think it just shows that howard is involved in a larger web like he might have this whole thing going on with the opal thing but he's got a whole other things going on with something else that he sold someone yesterday or this morning because the guy who's coming that guy who's who shows up every once in a while we see him in the beginning and he he makes some sort of deal with this you know $20,000 watch or whatever you know and he's like bring it back to me that's a $20,000 watch or something like that and so i just think it shows that it's not just this opal scenario that Howard's got going on. He's got lots of different deals with lots of different people. And so this is a bigger, you know, this is a whole universe that Howard has created for himself. So that's kind of what I see the purpose of that. Just reminding us that Howard is really, he's an addict. Like he, he's, he's got all of these different deals going on and, uh, don't forget, it's not just this one. You've got another one too. And the fact that there's one other one suggests that there's probably other ones that we don't know about. You know, like they're not showing up in this particular moment. That doesn't mean they don't exist, you know? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I, I guess I would add to that too is I think it's it's notable how different this guy that, that Howard owes money to um, is from someone like Arno in that he is... He seems he doesn't seem like your typical gangster at all. He seems relatively soft spoken uh, relative to everyone else in the movie. Seems new to the game. Yeah, he seems very new to the game. He seems much more vulnerable, much more lower level. I think the the watch that Howard gives him that he claims is twenty thousand. Later, the guy says, "Oh, he's scamming him with a fake watch." Like you know, he he's mm-hmm. getting nothing out of it basically. And I think that also shows not only that Howard has so many things going on, but also that Howard's the the schemes that he is running and the people that he's cheating and um and defrauding like there's such a wide web and it's trickling down to even the people who are who have really no business dealing with him and who you know he he's preying on the vulnerable in in a sense not that this guy is necessarily um like vulnerable seems like a weird place he's not a professional basketball player that has millions of dollars (laughs) yeah and he's not a professional gangster who has you know bodyguards who can follow him everywhere he just he like shows up and he has like his brother who's also kind of an older man like he is and does not look like he could take anyone in a fight like (laughs) you know it's it's almost like they're a represented representation of howard's conscience or or the the you know the behind unseen damage that Howard is leaving in his wake who just kind of show up to just kind of stand there and be a little bit irritating to Howard and just kind of remind him about everything that's going on and then he just kind of swats them away and keeps going mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'm glad you brought him up I forgot about that guy I mean he's in it so little yeah um, easy to forget yeah Howard um, certainly forgets about him <laughs> right um Okay, anything anything else before we um, move on? I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, you did a great job of summarizing this plot. It's it so was complicated. Rough. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I still made a bunch of mistakes. Um, but, okay, so moving on to critics, I thought this was really interesting. I was looking at Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, and according to, like, critics, on Metacritic, this movie has a 91%, and according to the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 91%. 
but the audience gave it a 52% on Rotten Ooh, Tomatoes. Fascinating. Which I I was going to go through and read reviews to see like what the audience thought about it to see like why it ended up averaging at 52%. I didn't have time to do that, but I think it's a tragedy that this movie has 52% from the audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and I looked it up on Letterboxd too. I was like, does the audience on Letterboxd dislike this movie? It's got, it's, it has like its highest scores are four stars on Letterboxd, but it also goes into four and a half and five. So I don't know what's happening with the Rotten Tomatoes audience, but y'all need to do better. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, so as far as some written reviews, sorry, I'm I, as you're talking, I'm scrolling through the audience reviews for Letterboxd and I just found this one that says too much loud yelling and cussing. Bad ending. Wow. Um, I think you missed the point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I pulled two reviews. One comes from Ty Burr at the Boston Globe. And he says, because Howard never stops moving, neither does the movie. And the effect is both exhausting and electrifying. Watching this latest bulletin from the Safdie brothers, Benny and Josh is like grabbing hold of a high voltage line. It doesn't feel great, but good luck letting go. I thought that was a thought that was an interesting review um, that for yeah. me kind of sums up a good uh, concept of this movie. Yeah, exhausting and electrifying is a great way to describe. This yes, movie. for sure. Um, and then yeah, so my second one comes from Wendy Eyed at Screen Daily, and she says the latest from the Safdie brothers is a cracking follow up to Good Time, a jangling panic attack of a movie, and a timely reminder that when he puts his mind to it, Adam Sandler can be one of the finest actors currently working. I really liked that because I wanted to make sure I had a review in here that mentioned Adam Sandler's performance because it is absolutely amazing in this movie. I am very upset he was not nominated for uh, an Academy Award. Yeah, he he is brilliant in this movie. He does the range of emotions that he has to, to show, the way he has to be so delusional and so constantly sure of himself all his mind is always working he's always trying to work out the next scheme um and yet he has these little moments where these cracks of vulnerability show through he just he handles that so well so well so well yeah he's he's great in this i think it's his best role i've i love him in punch drug love and the meyerwitz stories but this is a whole other level um but yeah, so as far as awards and legacy, we've kind of explicitly stated this, but this movie was one nothing that was from like a, a large notable um, award. It also was not nominated for anything. Absolutely um, disgraceful. It's awful. Uh, but I did note that it was nominated for some critics choice. It didn't win, but it was nominated for best picture, best actor, best director for both of the brothers and best editing um, if I had my say, I think as far as Academy Awards, this should have been nominated for actor, director, editing, um, uh, writing or screenplay rather. And um, yeah, that that's obviously it would have been nice to have other things too, but those are kind of the main ones that I would go for. I don't know about Best Picture. I don't remember the other Best Picture nominees that year, um, but it's a great movie. Yeah, so I mean, if I'm remembering it right, that was the Parasite year. Mm. Um, and I, it was a pretty good lineup from what I remember. Um, yeah. But I mean, with, with 10 pictures, there's always, there's always one that you could bump out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, uh, that's that. Um, so, 
Um, yeah, as far as uh, what this movie will stick with me, I mean, j- just the vibe of it. I mean, the Safdie brothers, their movies have just have such vibes. I wonder with their next film if it's going to have a similar type of vibe because Good Time and Uncut Gems are definitely within the same sphere. I wonder... Are they... Do they have a announced a next plan, uh, like a, a a next movie that is has been announced? Because I know that they, um, Benny Safdie has discussed wanting to do more acting. So I, I wasn't sure if they were still continuing to plan to direct together. Yeah, I haven't heard anything along those lines. I just hope that they'll make something else. Um, and if they were to, I wonder if it would be kind of in the same repertoire. Um, so yeah, I... Yeah, so what's going to stick with me with this movie? I just, I love the vibe of it. I don't think that there are many other movies like this that are out there. Um, and honestly, just Adam Sandler's performance. He he is really just, he's a showstopper in this one. And I think it was such great casting for him. And, and he just, he pulls it off. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what's going to, obviously, you know, I said the scene where he has his breakdown and then, the scene that was the opening quote to this episode, which was, you know, that this is how I win both iconic uh, scenes also in my mind. A meme. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what sticks with me. How about you, Geneva? I'm, I know you said you liked it better the second time around. So yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's such a vibes movie, like you it's, said. Yes. And I can definitely see myself watching it again. I think it'll be a movie where I will need to be in a very specific mood to watch, but um, yeah, I, I, could see this being a, a movie that I'll throw on if I'm in a mood where I'm like, I just, I need to drown out my brain with a lot of something that is a lot of stimulation. <laughs> and I think this movie would do the trick. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that is, um, that is our discussion of Uncut Gems. Geneva, what are we talking about next week? Yes. Next week we are um going to be continuing with the theme of men being pushed to the breaking point (laughs) (laughs) but with a very very different this time out at sea set of vibes yes um gonna just follow some some dudes being dudes out on the high seas it's master and commander the far side of the world very excited to revisit this movie this is another movie that uh was also on my list to talk about at some point you just got to it first so Needless to say, I love this movie. I'm excited to talk about it. Also, this movie's 20 years old. Came out in 2003. This movie's 20 years old. Absolutely nuts. Um, Which means I was very young when this first came. Well, not very young, but. Did you see this? Well, we can discuss it. I probably saw this when I was too young. But, you know, that's an ongoing trend with me and my life. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Next week, we will be talking about Master and Commander. So, uh come back for that episode until then have a good week (laughs) i never know how to end the episode like okay bye (laughs) bye everybody thanks for listening if you want to get in touch with us you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com our theme song was composed by joel rushton and our podcast graphic was designed by karishin if you like this show and want to hear more please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us until next time.